world is yours. The world is yours. Good morning and welcome to the September edition of Black Book Talk. This is Patricia Welch, Librarian Emeritus. Joining me today are co-host producers. Emma Jackson Ford, bookwoman. And O.B. Hill, community historian. This morning, we have the pleasure of having with us Damien Daryl Jerry, one of the editors of Nomadic Consequences, The Clap Back to Opponents of Critical Race Theory. Welcome to Black Book Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you having me. And actually, you are one of the editors. Would you tell us who yeah. the other editor of the book is? Dr. Walter Grayson. Dr. Walter Grayson is an esteemed, esteemed professor and historian. He's written articles in over a hundred books. He has a long, long, like decades long history of um, like academic excellence in the terms of like black history, social justice, also Afrofuturism. He did critical work with the authors of Black Panther and Marvel. And it's interesting because Dr. Grayson worked with Marvel on Black Panther before the movie came out. So his work actually informed the movie in terms of like what Wakanda should be and what it would look like. I'm very honored and I feel fortunate to work with this senior scholar on this project. Tell us a little bit about you, like why you were involved in this, why you're interested in this, who you are. Okay. Well, um, I have a, a creative writing background. Um, I did an MFA at the University of Memphis. I write science fiction, fantasy mostly, but I also um, write a, a bit of a social critique. So I've written for Marvel, Black Panther. Um, I've written for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Um, I have an essay in a book called Cracking the Wire During Black Lives Matter. I have two stories that are up for awards. One is a story in a book called Africa Risen, A New Era of Speculative Fiction. And I am very proud of that book because that book unites Black writers from all over the world, um, including Africa, right? But not just Africa, Black people in the United States, Throughout the diaspora? London, Australia, everywhere. So it was, yes. I'm very proud of that book because of the conversation that it has, that it has sparked among Black people. And I have another story in a book called um, Trouble the Waters, stories, um, tales from the deep blue. And that book is also up for best anthology um, in the World Fantasy Awards. And I'm proud of that work as well. It's like water mythology. So I was brought onto the project pretty much um, as an editor to make sure that the, that the essays projected the ideas that were inherent in them efficiently. So not just line edits, but um, like editing for arcs, making sure that the different essays sort of converse with each other in a way that's pro that was productive. I was pretty much brought on more for my like my editorial and like my writing skills. One of my thoughts while reading the book was why was the essay form chosen as the form for the book? Well, there were a couple of reasons. 
the main reason was we wanted to we wanted to make a volume that would speak to as many people as possible. We really want not only teachers, but we wanted students to get into this book. And also, we looked at the fact that when you're talking about critical race theory as an academic discipline, um, it's pretty lofty. And before all this controversy, most people like outside of law school, outside of academia and really graduate level academia had never really heard of critical race theory before. I knew I hadn't really heard of it. You know, so going back, we wanted to make a book that would sort of bring that language down to the masses. I don't really like to say down because of like that connotation, but just like we wanted to use language that would um, appeal to and be relatable to a large audience. In chapter 10 of the book, you um, it's called De- Decolonizing Public Minds and Public Places, and yes. you're dealing with uh, critical race theory. Mm-hmm. You have a 50-year span all the way from De- uh, Derrick Bell to uh, hip-hop. Could you explain how you incorporated or integrated those two concepts to to span a 400-year period? That's a, an excellent question. So I will start by saying that culture, the idea of using our culture to claim our humanity and to claim freedom, that's kind of the crux That's the glue that holds everything together. The idea that black people, especially when our backs have been against this wall in the United States, we have managed to use our minds and most importantly for me, our art in order to claim our humanity and to claim liberty. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about you know, the Negro spirituals like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, right? Or if we're talking about 1970s, George Clinton, right, calling down the mothership, singing Sweet Low Sweet Chariot, right? There's just this connection between our art and our fight for freedom. And I feel as though hip hop has picked up that, has picked up that torch. So we included Nas Illmatic because Nas, this album is an excellent example, in my opinion, of first-person narrative or first-person storytelling, which is also a tenet of critical race theory as a discipline. The idea that in order to learn about people, a very good way is to actually ask the people about themselves and listen to their stories, right? Instead of just reducing people to statistics. So I'm going to go a little bit farther with that and say, but why was Illmatic chosen? Why Nas? And okay. for those who don't know, what does Illmatic mean in okay. this context? Illmatic means the science of being ill. There are a lot of definitions, but Nas himself says that illmatic is the science of being ill. It is the illest of all ill things. Now, when we say ill in hip-hop, ill is just a word that means something is outstanding, right? Um, Something is great, right? When you really like this, ill. 
when it really touches your soul and makes you feel a certain way, we use that language. Um, so we use Illmatic particularly because of the storytelling, but also to celebrate Nas as not only a pioneer of music, but also a pioneer in education. There's the Nazir Jones Fellowship, right, that is named after him. And that fellowship enables scholars to teach classes at Harvard. In fact, the artist, uh, Stacy Robinson, who did the visual essay chapter in the book, and to me, like the art in the book, that is like one of the, that's one of the best parts. But Stacy Robinson himself is a Nazir fellow. So we chose Illmatic because a lot of people who were like just say in their 20s, teenagers back in those 90, the 90s era, like we're kind of like, we're, we're looking at 50 years ourselves. So we have grown up and become scholars and teachers and professionals. And, you know, we have something to say. You were talking about Mr. Robinson's work, yes. the graphic images that are included in the book. Yes. Why are they there? Why are they there? They are there because we needed another dimension, right? We needed something to, because we're all about trying to spread these essays, teach the, the, the truths inherent in them, right? So we needed something that would, frankly, appeal to visual learners, right, and bring them in, too, to give people who are more visual a way to digest some of these ideas. And also to give Stacey Robinson a chance to use some of the symbology that surrounds Nas and his music in a way that, that not only perpetuates the ideas but vivifies them. So I'm looking at page 171, the first image in the essay, right? You see, he, you see Nas, but you also see there's an image of a sun with a, it's like the number seven and a little star in it. That is the symbol for the nation of gods and earth, which is an offshoot of the nation of Islam, which is sort of like, I don't want to say it's a religion, but it is a it's a school of philosophy, right, that was born in New York that spread around the New York area, right, and a lot of urban teens are members of the nation of gods and earths. In fact, when we talk about, like, many of the educational aspects of hip-hop, and especially the Afrofuturist aspects of hip hop, a lot of those ideas can be traced back to the nation of gods and earth. So Stacy's art, you know, that's just one symbol that kind of helps, um, that his art kind of helps to evoke. One of my favorite ones is on page 178. And you have an, you have an image of Nas's father looking and his father is looking forward while Nas is looking back. But it's as if from the vision of his father is born Nas. It's sort of saying that, right, 
the way we look at history, the way we study, it sort of goes back and forth through time, right? That, and so we say time is Illmatic in this way. So that's another image I really, really love. Also, the one on the next page, 179, which is the half man, half amazing, which is kind of like his, the artist Stacy Robbins. He, he crossed a picture of Nas with this imagery that's taken from Spider-Man. And half man, half amazing is a line from Illmatic. So basically sort of saying that these rappers, especially Nas, right, through their lyrics, they do things that sort of like rise them above their surroundings. It's sort of like um, a message of transcendence, you know? Basically, the images are there in order to to appeal to a different kind of learner. Is S.A. Robinson's... uh... Uh, drawings or uh, th- that are illustrated in here. Does he have them uh, in a uh, museum, or are they traveling around in uh, collections so people can see them? Well, I think that he is going to right now. From my understanding, this collection is exclusively in this book. Now there are pe- now the pieces are like up by themselves in different places. In fact, if you look up Stacy Robinson and you just do a Google of his name, several of these images will come up. I'm not sure if he has collected these images in a show, but I'm sure he will because uh, like Stacy Robinson is an incredible artist and professor himself. So I'm sure he will be putting these up at some museum somewhere. And I hope to see that. And I, I feel like these images are very powerful and they will last, you know, the test of time. So people will see these for years to come. I also appreciated the poetry in the book, the lyrics from Nas's song music, but also yes. just the little the interludes, the breaks. So, I mean, yes. I think that I'm not, it's not a something for everybody, you know, kind of experience. I'm sure there's some people that, you know, but mm-hmm. I think that, you know, as you go through the book, that there's a kind of flow. And I appreciated that. I also appreciated some of the more just direct explanations of things I'm trying to see. In chapter seven, don't know what page, but somebody just says, racism is the way that society does business. And that that's embedded in critical race theory. And I thought, could you just tell us a little bit more, you know, a more simplified Oh, explanation yes. um, of CRT than maybe, you know, some of us have encountered as we read or watch TV or whatever. Okay. So um, I'll start with the line you said. You said racism is the way America does business. Well, one of the tenets or one of the aspects of critical race theory deals with the idea that racism is not an aberration. Racism is quite normal in the United States. And racism is not just hooded Klan members burning crosses in your yard. A part of racism is lynchings and overt racism, but that's not the entirety of it. Their racism is multifaceted. And for Black people, it works in almost we encounter it in almost every aspect of our lives. 
It doesn't matter if you're going into the bank to get a loan, if you're going to the doctor and you're trying to figure out which doctor to go to. Yeah, so as far as defining critical race theory, I always, when people ask me this, I, I point them back to Derrick Bell, Kimberly yes. Crenshaw, the creators of critical race theory. Derrick Bell is considered is considered to be like one of the forefathers of it. And Kimberly Crenshaw actually coined the phrase. So Kimberly Crenshaw describes critical race theory actually as a verb, a tool, a way of looking at the law, but a way of looking at the ways in which the law perpetuates racism. This comes from civil rights lawyers being in court and finding that there, finding that there were disparages between the civil rights bill and the actual execution of the statutes in the bill. The bill was signed, but they're in court fighting for the rights that are promised to African Americans. So that's kind of like pretty much, I would say, like the crux of it. It goes a lot deeper than that because when we think about our interaction with the law, a part of that is interaction with law enforcement. But another part of our interaction with the law deals with public housing policy, education. Uh, I will give an example. About a month, two months ago, affirmative action was overturned in the Supreme Court, right? So when we talk about critical race theory, we're going there. Right after, right, affirmative action is overturned, you get the legislation in Florida, right, that pretty much um, has sort of has rewritten history and said that black people benefited and learned skills from slavery, right? And to see the curriculum, Florida's curriculum, the way they describe slavery is um, it's very interesting, especially when you compare that curriculum to the way they describe the Holocaust. So when we talk about black people in terms of our interaction with the law, it's not just in courtrooms. That's it's um it's multifaceted, right? Because public policy comes from law, the law and lawmakers pretty much. But also I appreciate the fact that Bell Bell argued that whites advance the interests of black people only when they converge with and advance the interests of white people. So, you yes. know, many of us said, well, we've been through the civil rights era and we have all these gains. How could these gains possibly be lost? What is going on? But I just like that, that, that Bell just said, no, you need to pull back and look at things. Like he's probably the only person that I've heard that I know of who actually questioned uh, Brown versus the Board of Education and the fact that we all thought that that was a wonderful game for us. And he said, no, look at the context. That yes. This was a time where the United States needed to be seen favorably in the yes. international community. In one of the chapters, the essay talks about the, the study commissioned by LBJ, uh, the Kerner Commission, Mm-hmm. And about how the report, uh, after he received it, it was never signed by him. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, that is in, it's in the interview with Harry Allen. That's, your, that's in chapter 12, Don't Believe the Right. And basically, what Harry Allen did, and I, I really love that chapter because what Harry Allen did was he gave a succinct synopsis of not only factions of the government attempting to correct wrongs did to black people over the years, but the backlash that they got from that. And sort of connecting that with the backlash from critical race theory or critical race theory in quotations. Basically, the idea is this, that any time that there has been a, an actual effort to correct the wrongs done to African-Americans in the United States, there's been backlash against it. So when someone has said, okay, well, they should get 40 acres, someone else says, no, they shouldn't, right? When someone says, okay, well, we need to change the educational system or the public policy so that black history, POC or people of color, their history, their history is being taught like, from, their, from different perspectives, right? There's been backlash against it. So basically what Harry Allen is saying is that the backlash against critical race theory is not something new, right? And, and it not being, it's changed forms over the years and it will continue to change forms. So in other words, there will be something else that will in a few more years, right? So we have to watch out for that. The target groups to read this book and and distributed it to, do you need a college education to be able to understand this, or or or, or do you think uh, it can be more than uh, one generation? I do think it could be more than one generation, and that is what we had in mind when we were writing the book. Uh, well, not well when we were editing the book and compiling the essays. So that's part of the part, that's actually part of the reason for using the language of hip hop. But I would say that we really focused on editing the book and presenting the language in a way that's not mystified, you know, in a way that's straightforward that anybody can pick it up and read it and readily understand it from the first essay um, by Lee Ross, where he just lays out a pretty much um, straightforward explanation of what critical race theory is as well as what the controversy is that's surrounding it. So no, I feel that you don't have to have a college degree to read this book and understand it from cover to cover. I would even say that adventurous high schoolers could definitely, definitely read this book. There are certain essays that in my opinion are geared towards them. One, I would say, is the Michael A. Gonzalez piece, uh, Black Noise, White Wash, where he talks about his experiences. Like he, he talks about growing up, being a big fan of Led Zeppelin and learning from a teacher that Led Zeppelin, right, took a lot of their music from old blues artists like Memphis Minnie. And not only that, but old blues artists like Memphis Minnie, Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, these are the actual architects of rock and roll. Big Mama Thornton, 
So and he he goes from that to talk about the importance of teaching African American music history in school, right? How that can uplift students. And I found that message to be so profound. So I would say, yes, there are pieces in here that, in my opinion, are actually geared towards younger people. Let's talk a little bit more about hip hop. Celebrating the 50th anniversary. Some people love it. Some people think uh, it's just, you know, the the spawn of the devil, misogynistic and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And what encouraging materialism above everything. But from my really outside view, it seems to me that there's maybe, I don't know, maybe the proper term is conscious hip hop as opposed to, but that there's hip hop that really is uplifting and just telling the truth. And then there's this, well, there's this stuff that's out here and I'm like, why, why, why? Which I am assuming that somebody's pushing because they know it makes money for them and they don't care how it affects anybody else. But just tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about hip hop and how, again, how it relates to this. We have the 50th anniversary of hip hop, right? Yes. Yes. So I actually, um, I went to New York and I went to the South Bronx. One of my favorite rappers, KRS-One, he threw a free concert in the South Bronx at one of the birthplaces of hip hop, 1520 Sedgwick. So it's kind of far out. You have to catch a subway. You have to catch a bus. You have to walk through some housing projects. You have to go down steps. It it takes a lot to get there. But I will say this. There were lots of rappers. It was amazing. And it garnered a lot of publicity. There was a lot of of just talk about it over various platforms. So, yeah, this this was like the place to be. Go on. Yes, it was wonderful. And there was one moment Benjamin Crump came out. And he was talking to the audience. And basically, Benjamin Crump said that hip-hop, right, is Black history. He said that the rappers, right, are are the ones who will carry our history forward. And they are the rappers. Hip-hop is crucially important, especially in the society where history is being rewritten in public schools. Right. So it's up to the rappers to excuse me, to take our history forward, just as the griots, you know, (laughs) of Africa have done. So rappers are also sort of like looked at as these this this sort of new age griot. And he, he started chanting hip hop is black history. And he had like the crowd saying it and it was very powerful. And I'm going to tell you something else about that. So this is what I noticed. I'm there. I'm in the middle of the South Bronx. There there are cops. There are police everywhere. They're all around. And I'm looking at the police, and they're all like this. They're, They're bobbing their heads to the music. They were enjoying the music. And I was just like, wow. And I just really, I felt connected to them. And I said, this is how it should be. Police should be in our community as a part of the community, not there just to protect the property. I felt in that moment as though the police were there to protect me, you know, and to make sure that we all had a good, safe time. And that that was really profound to me. The people in the neighborhood, 
right, in the houses around the concert. They were literally outside in their driveways vending. They had vending tables. And that I love that, too, the fact that it was not only a concert where rappers like Public Enemy came and performed, but it was a way for pe- the people in the actual neighborhood got a chance to capitalize off of it. So hip-hop has this grassroots aspect that can bring and draw people together in the spirit of peace, love, unity, and having fun. Danny and Jerry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you all. I appreciate you all. I appreciate your questions, and thank you for reading the book. And um, I appreciate the work that you all are doing in your communities. Let's continue forward, onward, as they say. The world is yours. The world is yours. The world is yours. The world is yours.